Well, hey, good morning, Fellowship of Faith. And before we go any farther, big shout outs to all of our dads who are watching today. Big happy Father's Day out there. I hope you just have an amazing day ahead of you. My name is David Gadini, senior pastor here at Fellowship of Faith. And today is week two of questions you never thought that you could ask in church. The concept is simple. We are inviting you to text in any question that you have on God, the Bible, the Christian faith, following Jesus, wrestling through the spiritual side of life, spirituality, religion in general, fellowship of faith, to the number that you're going to see on your screen right now, 815-314-0363. Any question you have to 815-314-0363, I will get those anonymously, and I will do the best job that I can to answer them in real time right here, right now on the spot. Last week, we had such a volume of questions come in. I hope to pick up on some of those again today, but we want you to keep streaming your questions in, whatever they might be, because what we believe is that church is a place where people should ask questions, where you should ask questions. God wants us to ask questions. He wants us to air out our doubts, the things that we wrestle with, the things that we wonder with. We don't have to be ashamed of them. We don't have to be embarrassed of them. We don't have to think, I should know this already, and all the other stupid things that kind of creep in to churches being place where people are walking on the journey together. Because I'll tell you this, following Jesus is the best thing ever, but it is hard and it's messy and it's confusing. And a lot of times we find ourselves in that place going, ah, we believe church is meant to be a place where we're helping each other along on that journey. And that's the spirit of what this is and what our church, FOF, is all about. So text them in to 815-314-0363, and let's see where it takes us. Now, I'm going to pick up with a question from last week as the questions start to come in, and here it is. Over the past few months, there hasn't seemed to be enough hours in the day. Are there any passages, simple practices you'd recommend to help someone refocus their daily routine? I mean, isn't that the utter irony of these last three months? Everything has been shut down, and yet don't we find that it still seems as though the days go by so quickly, or all the grand intentions that we had, like, you know, I'm going to learn French or something during these three months of, like, shelter in place, all these grand intentions we have to, to start working out or begin a devotional life or whatever it might be, it didn't happen, did it? Well, let me speak into this, because what I've found is it really has nothing to do with the amount of time or the busyness of the day. It's about priority. And I don't say this to be harsh. I don't say this to judge. I speak to myself as I answer this question. It's just simply about what you prioritize, because there is never enough time in any day to get everything done that you want, everything that you think is important, everything that calls for your attention. So let me give you some practical wisdom, maybe to help navigate this. Here at Fellowship of Faith, we used to have a practice called Faith Challenges, daily spiritual practices based on Sunday morning that we invite you to bring into your week Monday through Friday. Suggested passages 
prayer techniques, things that you can do to spend anywhere from two to 10 to 20 minutes with God on a regular, ongoing basis. We've renamed these recently. They're called faith training now. And I want to invite you to go to our website. Go today, even right now, to fellowshipoffaith.org. You're going to see the whole thing got a makeover. And under the ministries tab, you are going to see a page called faith training. I want you to click on that page. Take a little time to soak in the videos. Take a little time to read the content that you'll see there because it's all answering this question. It is all designed to help you find any passages or simple practices that we're recommending to help you focus your daily routine. You'll find three tracks there, mild faith training, moderate and intense, depending on how hard you want to push yourself and how much you want to invest and where you kind of feel like you're at spiritually. Find the track that's right for you. But I encourage you, start on that today and commit to it. Commit to it for, say, the next six weeks. That sounds like an eternity, right? 40 days. Commit to it for the next 40 days saying, I am going to give my all to making this a priority. If you fall off the wagon one day, hey, don't beat yourself up. Just pick it up again the next day and see if it forms a new habit or pattern of refocused time with God with you. I'm so glad you asked. Thank you for texting that one in. Let's take a few more. How about this? This is a simple one. How old is FOF? How old is Fellowship of Faith? Guys, can you wrap your mind around it that we turned 21 this year? The birthday is a little bit ambiguous, whether it's February or June, depending on how you date some things, but we are a solid 21. FOF can finally legally drink. So rock on, FOF. We have made it to our adulthood 20s. And it's been great having so many of you on the ride with it. All right. Now, this one came through as a series of texts. And I need to kind of read it off the compilation because, well, it's a bit longer. Bear with me. But there's something cool here. In Genesis, the tribe of Dan is said to be providing justice for his people. This is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders tumble backwards. And then in parentheses, it says in this text, sent with loud effect, which is just like awesome. In Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8, the tribe of Dan has been replaced by the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 times 12 equals 144,000 tribes of Israel. Can it be the tribe of Dan was removed because of false doctrines? Many rabbis have been returning to Jerusalem to preach the gospel of Jesus. They have been called Jews for Jesus. My! Is, are these the 144,000 the book of Revelation speaks of? Okay, did you track all that? Because that was like, shall we say, the deep end of the pool. In Genesis, you have Jacob, one of those classic patriarchs of the Old Testament world. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, Jacob gets into a wrestling match, into a fight with God, and so God renames Jacob Israel, telling to me that the people of God's name actually means fights with God or wrestles with God. Hopefully that brings you some encouragement, and it's some of the spirit of what we do 
right here. But at the end of Jacob slash Israel's life, he gathers his 12 sons together. I mean, you've seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know who they are, right? And they're all gathered, and Dan is one of them. And some of what this question alludes to are things that you could read in the final chapters of Genesis where the blessings are being handed out by Jacob to his sons. Well, jump now to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and you get this strange list of the tribes of Israel, but very conspicuously, the tribe of Dan is missing. And no one is really sure why. The book of Revelation doesn't give comment on it. It doesn't give an answer to key to it. It's not alluded elsewhere. But the best people can figure is that because Dan had such a history as a tribe of apostasy, which is just a big fancy word that means rebelling against God, going a different way, selling God out, betraying, that even though they were marked as among the people of God, God no longer considers them the people of God. Also, a sober warning to those of us who go by the name Christian. And then it lists what it's called the 144,000, not 144,000 tribes, but 144,000 among the tribes. And I don't believe what Revelation is doing is saying that it is a specific 144,000 delineated number, nor that it's specifically referring to the ethnically Jewish people alone, but in Revelation style, a highly symbolic, highly just imagery-laden number referring to the people of God in general. To those of us who call ourselves by the name of Christ and follow him, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, there's so much more I can get into. And to you who texted the question in, this is probably a 15-minute sit-down. To the rest of you who are like, oh my gosh, this went on too long already, thanks for hanging with us. But hopefully, what one believer is wrestling through has sparked you to think about things that maybe you've never even thought to ask. And that's some of the joy of what we get to do with this today. Thanks for asking. So, let's go on. How about this? Another simple one, but pretty profound. Who created God? The answer is no one. God has always been. I know it defies logic. How does that work? I don't know how that works, but it's one of the unique attributes that makes God, God, and something different from us. All other things in this world in this universe, are created by him. Created fundamentally from him as the source. But he alone stands unique from his creation, outside of his creation, separate from his creation, as being uncreated, but so powerful in his own right that he always simply was. Thanks for asking. All right. How about this? Should you respect someone in authority even if they flout the teachings of Jesus at every turn? The short answer, and you're not going to like it, is yes. Because that's what Jesus calls us to do, and that's what the New Testament calls us to do. Respecting someone doesn't mean that you obey them. Respecting someone doesn't mean that you condone their actions. Respecting someone doesn't mean that somehow you ally yourself with a position that they take. Respecting someone simply means this person 
is important. Like it or not, they're an authority. They're important. And God calls us to treat these people, whether we like them or not, whether they're even blasphemous to God or not, as people that we owe our respect. It's one of the most difficult things to do as a Christian. When you hate a leader's guts, but you are nonetheless called by Christ to respect him. That honors God, even if it means defiance to the person, but always with respect. Hope that helps, but I bet that created a lot of quagmire in life. All right. What's this one? Let's see. Why are so many congregations becoming completely lost? Why is it so hard for today's church to stop conforming to the culture and disseminate truth to its people? You know, there's a lot embedded in this question. And I think I want to start by saying what you may be sensing or experiencing now with so many congregations feeling lost has been the case since the first century A.D. For 2,000 years, there have been many congregations of believers, many believers who gather together and individually who are lost. And there's many people in every congregation who are lost. And it happens for all kinds of reasons. Yes, the temptation to conform to culture is usually there. And the equal temptation to be countercultural is always there. Remember, culture is value neutral. Just because something is of the culture, that doesn't make it good or bad. Worry less about the culture, I think, and worry more about God's call on your life. And be true to God's call and where that fits in with the culture. Fantastic. Where it doesn't fit in with the culture, accept that. At the same token, I think it's important to note that churches are called to speak to people in a culture, to contextualize themselves to culture. And there's many things that people assume are culturally wrong that are not, and many things that people assume are culturally right. You know, you got the idea. So there's lots of reasons why congregations become completely lost. Some is because they abandon truth. Some is because they know truth full well, but they stop following and stop obeying. Some is because they are all about truth, but they have lost love, the greatest command that Jesus has given. And some simply because they've become ghettos unto themselves that hide away, trying to maintain their own sanctuary walls, a safety net from the outside, and have defied the mission God has to be a voice to the people around them. So hopefully that helps and We'll take it from there. Huh, how about this? Are we, aren't we all lost? At some level, yes. I mean, at some level, all of us are born in sin and lost. But just because you were lost doesn't mean you still are lost. There are many who are not, to use the biblical analogy, who are lost no more. You know, this lost imagery, it really comes out of the parables of Jesus. I think of the parable of like the lost sheep or the lost coin. You can read about this in Luke 15 if you're looking for a passage maybe today to focus your devotional time on. 
read Luke 15. It'll take you three minutes and 42 seconds, all right? It talks about those who have strayed from God and God going out to find them, to bring them back to those who have not strayed. There are those who have not strayed. Yes, we all sin, but all of us have not abandoned God, run away from God, turned our back on God, wandered away, or find ourselves outside of God's fold or flock or purse or whatever analogy anymore. So, yes, we are all lost, but the good news of Jesus is that he seeks us until we're found, which means that we can stand here today and go, Lord Jesus, you found me. You found me. I'm not lost anymore. No, maybe I'm confused. Maybe I'm lost in certain aspects of my life. But with you, no. I'm found. And it's the most God-honoring thing to say, if it's true. Great question. How about this? What social norms do you see going away after the pandemic? Will the handshake turn into the salute? Or even better, the bow? I can only tell you that I hope it turns into the bow. That would be incredible. Oh my gosh. Who knows? But I'll tell you my gut feel. Have you ever heard the term regress to the mean? I have just kind of found in human culture and human nature there is always a tendency to regress to the mean. That that which is uncomfortable now starts to become more comfortable and life goes back to normal. Let's see if I'm right or wrong, but that's my suspicion. But hey, be a trendsetter. Start the bow. All right. How about this? Do you think that my mom's boyfriend deserves to be honored on Father's Day if he's like a father figure to you? Yeah. If this man is like a father figure to you, honor him. You know, I had the joy of growing up with two dads. And as dysfunctional as it might have been on paper, and practicality, surprisingly, it worked. And at family parties, they would sit together and talk. A dad and a stepdad. And I was able to honor them both on Father's Day. To honor my biological father, who I had a relationship with, and maybe you do too, to honor him, but also to honor the other father figures in your life. It is never out of sorts to honor people who are important to you. And may I just add, you don't even have to marry it to one day. How about this? A little bit longer, let me work through it with you. Normally when I ask someone why they believe in God, they say they just know that he's there or they felt him. But then there's people who come from other faiths that say the same thing. I guess my question is, what makes your feeling more reliable than that of someone who follows any other faith, Hinduism, paganism, etc.? Then if there is no difference, is there any proof that the Abrahamic God is the one true God? This is one so many people wrestle with and so many of us who are followers even have to evaluate ourselves. I'm so glad you ask. The reason we follow God might be for some precipitated by a feeling. 
But it's never meant to rest in a feeling alone. I have found that feelings can be deceptive. I've had people come into my office in the middle of affairs who are just convinced that it's of God because it feels so right. The Bible says our feelings are fleeting and deceptive and that the human heart is corrupt. That our feelings are a gift of God, but they're not perfect. And so, to rest your entire basis for following this God versus that God on a feeling alone is fundamentally dangerous, faulty ground. No, there are other reasons for affirming that God, that this God or idea about God is true, and this one is not, that transcend feelings, that go beyond feelings. And I encourage you that your faith needs to get rooted in that as well. By all means, I'm not discounting feelings. Because when you have a relationship with someone, I hope you feel something towards them. But to frame it by analogy, my relationship with my wife is not dependent on a feeling. I know that I'm married to her not because I feel like I'm married to her. Any married couple will tell you there's many times when you don't feel like you're married or into each other or in love or whatever it might be because it's not based on the feeling alone. But when those more transcendent things that serve as the foundation of the relationship are there. Yes, feelings become a natural part of it so that for many believers, those original reasons almost start to become secondary or forgotten. What brought them to a faith by analyzing evidence or being convicted of the truth or seeing the worldview in the right way or a thousand other things that I can mention begin to be not replaced, but shaded out by the intimate real relationship that's just kind of known and felt, sort of like love is in its best expression. I hope that helps guide you through that question, at least a little bit in some kind of way. All right, let's do a flashback question to last week. What's the plan for the coffee bar? It's the real important stuff, right? What is the plan for the coffee bar when in-person church starts again? Are we still going to have amazing treats? I'll tell you this. I think fellowship of faith, like much of society, eventually is going to regress back to the norm or the mean. When we start meeting in July, in person I mean, I don't anticipate we're going to have the treats just then, and my heart breaks with yours. But don't worry, COVID will not last forever. At least not in this current form that it's taking our world. They will come again soon, and we are making plans for what coffee bar will look like in July, probably moving away from self-serve to coming up to a barista who's serving you even the self-serve until things just kind of start to steady out a little bit more again. Hang in there with us or uh, bring your own if you'd like. All right, how about this? Knowingly, I am compelled to fall into habitual sin despite repenting over and over. You and me both. Reading Hebrews 6.4, which is like the utterly most frightening passage you'll read in the Bible, I swear. It says that I am crucifying Christ over and over again. 
Is my soul lost and I cannot be saved? Let me read the passage to you today. Hebrews 6.4. One of five very strong warning passages in the book of Hebrews, but the one that seems to get the most attention says this. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. I'll tell you, if you take your faith seriously and that passage doesn't scare you at the core of your being, I just don't get it. I remember when I came face to face with this in my first real way and it rocked me to my core. It seems to indicate, oh Lord, I can find myself in a place where I can never come back again. Is there anything more terrifying to the life of a Jesus follower? You know, I want to key you in on just a couple of nuances to maybe help you steer through the way you ask the question. The question talks about falling away. And in Hebrews, it seems to be delineated from sin. You talked about sinning over and over again, consciously, intentionally aware of it, and I don't want to make light of that. Don't do it. No, let this passage literally scare the hell out of you to a place where you go, this matters and there are stakes involved. No, let it have that effect, but it does delineate sin from falling away because falling away seems to be an accumulation of sin, at which point we don't know where it has such a hardening effect on our hearts that it renders us in a place completely defiant to God and impervious, if I can use that language, to the work of his spirit on our life. No one knows where that point is. No one knows how many cigarettes you have to smoke before it hits lung cancer. No one knows how many drinks you have to take before you become an alcoholic. Nobody knows a lot of these things. So scripture gives a warning. Don't sin, flee from it, because that has an effect on you. It hardens your heart and seals the spirit of God off. And yes, there does seem to be a place where it finally cauterizes the heart so much that it is insensitive to the call to repentance. But notice what it says. It is impossible for the person to repent. So the litmus test for you is this. Are you repentant? Are you broken over your sin? Do you look at your sin? Do you hate your sin? Do you give it to God? Do you try to turn from your sin? Do you ask God's forgiveness for it? Do you feel remorse in the midst of it? I'll tell you, if those elements are there, that's good news. None of us like that feeling. But it's good news because it means you haven't cauterized God and your life. And you ain't there. So if a passage like this scares you straight to become aware of the sin that you take so lightly, bring it to God in repentance and know that in that place, his grace abounds and his forgiveness is there. Email me if you'd like to go more on that one. All right. 
was Jesus tempted by a female? I'm sure he was. Many, many times. The same book that we call Hebrews in the New Testament says that he was tempted in every way. Think about that. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. That everything that you face in temptation, everything that seeks to capture you, that that lures you, that captures your heart, Jesus faced that too. And yet he did it and navigated that path without succumbing to temptation and sin. Isn't that amazing? That's who we get to follow. The one who's figured it out. And he says, come follow me. And I'll help you along the way. All right. All right. I think I know who this one is from because it can only be from one person. Dude, how stoked are you for Reed Lessing's Zechariah commentary? Dude, I am so stoked. Study group in Lake Geneva, all right? I cannot wait until it comes out. And dude, you got to change your vacation plans too. Make, July, make August happen with this. You tell your wife right now, I'm sorry, it's Reed Lessing. I got to go, all right? You make that happen because dude, so stoked. Are you guys stoked? They don't, they don't get it. They don't get it. All right. What is the Holy Spirit? How is it different from God and Jesus? <laughs> right? Holy Spirit is God. You see him appear in the first three verses of the Bible. There's different ways, different metaphors that it used, but it seems to be God's presence here in the material world. True God, one with God, the essence of God is God, and yet separate from a different or delineated from a different facet of God who remains transcendent in heaven. The New Testament will use language of Father and Spirit to delineate between these two persons to use the classic theological language and yet one God. You're asking a Trinitarian question. But practically it means some things like this. A, God may be in heaven, but God still comes here among you. B, God may be transcendent, but God is still here imminent in this world, knowable and receivable. C, you can pray to him. D, you can love him. E, you can seek him. And Jesus and the Father, they don't get jealous. All right? They're all in this together. So kind of fall forward into this and uh, have fun seeking and adoring and loving and worshiping the forgotten third partner of the Trinity. He's an important one, and he likes you too. All right, let's go here. Let's uh, not do the same one that I just did. Let's go here. Oh, you followed up from last week. What was Samson's dad's name? I misled you. It's not Judges 16, it's Judges 13. And of course, you made me do the Google search. It's Manoah, all right? Uh, Some follow-ups. Where and who did Mary live with after the death of Jesus? Doesn't say. Bible doesn't say, though Christian tradition, whether it's more folklore or 
actual I don't know does suggest that she lived with John, who is the youngest disciple of Jesus. I think a lot of this came from the idea that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looked to John and said, behold your mother, and he looked to Mary and he said, behold your son. And then of course, Mary came into John's home, it says at that point. How long that lasted, I don't know. What happened to Joseph along the way? I don't know. Where their final residence was, I don't know. But the city of Ephesus is often attributed as the final place where John was at and then Mary was at too. The details just get lost, but uh, hey, 30, 40, 50, maybe 60 years, depending on how old you are, ask her when you get there, all right? What about the, uh, excuse me, what book of the Bible talks about the dead in Christ rising first? You know, most people think that the goal of Christianity is heaven. And ooh, don't hear me wrong, we are going to heaven. But you know what? Heaven is a waiting room to the resurrection of the dead. And it is the best waiting room you'll ever be in, don't get me wrong, right? The Bible drips with talk of the dead in Christ rising. Where I want you to go specifically, just to kind of key in on some things, are 1 Corinthians 15, probably your best explanation of it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 would be another great place to go, but quite honestly, you're going to find the entire New Testament and old, dripping with resurrection imagery and language. Isaiah, Ezekiel, other fantastic places you can go troll as well. Check them out and uh, do some reading here today. All right? How about uh, we move here? There's one that I had, and here it is. Will FOF have Bible boot camp this year? Rock on, we will. Gwen Johnson is having Bible boot camp this year, but, hear this, but it will be different. We wrestled so much with this. Each week of this shelter in place that's been around since March going, what's going to happen? Oh, by July it'll be fine. And each month ticking by, going, oh my gosh, things aren't changing quickly enough. We had to make a hard decision this year to move to a virtual Bible boot camp. It'll be held July 13th through the 17th, and the information will be up on the website by the very beginning of July, in which there'll be video content that we've already been shooting, in which you'll get take-home packets to do, and daily check-ins, and all kinds of things to do from home, with a possible one on-site day that's in the works, probably in September, as a big Saturday blowout where we get to do capture the flag and the obstacle courses and all those kinds of cool things. It is not ideal. But I tell you, they got some new and creative things happening in the midst of it that, that I hope you remain open to, that I think can be really cool and exciting and might even have an evangelistic impact that goes beyond what an in-person would actually do. So stay in touch, stay cued to our website, and uh, get the information from there. Speaking of which, I got this one. Love the new logo. What was the inspiration behind it? You know, if you haven't heard, this Thursday, or rather this Friday, we rolled out a new logo with our new website at FOF. And so glad that you love it. So cool, isn't it? We're so happy about it. And let me talk about it just a little bit, the inspiration behind it. You know, as much as we think of a logo as being fixed, logos regularly change. This is true for Fellowship of Faith. This has been true 
for many companies throughout the world. I think of Pepsi. I think of WWE. You can see where I kind of swim. You can think of so many others that get new, refreshed looks for different seasons, for different eras, to communicate something new. You know, so much has changed in our landscape these last three months, and so much has changed in the last year for Fellowship of Faith. And so many new and exciting things are coming. We've been talking about a building project for, what, well over a year now? More on that, more on that um, next week. But so many other things as well. And as you look at it, what we want to do is brand that we're going somewhere. That there's a sense of direction like an arrow pointing to where God is leading. Not replacing the old, drawing on that which we are. The same name, an F in the circle, you know, all this kind of stuff. But it's pointing somewhere with, with a certain edge, with a certain boldness to it. We did this experiment where we asked a lot of people as we were kind of looking to play this out. What do you see? when you see this image? Ask yourself that question, but I'll tell you some of what people said here. They said, we see moving forward. We see something inspiring. We see something modern to a younger generation. And other things had been said as well. You know, this isn't meaning that our old logo is obsolete or that's replaced, far from it, we love it. And you're going to see the old and the new in some kind of mix. But we want to do what visual representation does best. Give an unconscious reminder that we're moving into a new chapter. A new exciting adventure together of what God is calling our church to do and be in this next season. I'm going to speak more into this next week. But that just gives a little bit of the taste behind it. And uh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Thanks for asking. All right, how about this? How does the idea of evolution play into the Bible? It defies a simple answer. Not knowing the question behind the question, I need to kind of take some assumptions here to help navigate this. You know, it starts by your definition of evolution. What do you actually mean when you talk about it? Are you talking about the observable phenomena in nature that species will mutate and based on those mutations, new things will happen? Well, of course, I mean, that's kind of been a given since the time of creation. And the Bible isn't opposed to that kind of thinking, despite what some might say. Or by evolution, do you mean a worldview where God plays no role? where God doesn't really exist, or if he exists, we can't factor him in because we can only deal with the universe and our conception of the universe in a closed system apart from anything that we would call supernatural, which, by the way, isn't a word that the Bible uses either, but you know what I mean. Well, no, that would be out of bounds from the biblical idea because the Bible is clear about this. God created the heavens and the earth. Everything is made except God. And everything that we have, maybe not in all its variations, but everything at its core substance was created by God. And how that all plays together and the development of our world and species and humanity, well, that will be debated on a large spectrum within Christianity. And that's where I encourage you to do, your, to do some heavy lifting and read. 
There's a book that I want to recommend to you, and I don't remember the actual title. Not helpful, I know. But once I give you this, you can Amazon it quickly enough. It's just called Four Views. Just type in Four Views on Christianity and Evolution into Amazon, and you're going to see the whole series pop up. And what you'll have is four different authors coming from four different perspectives, debating this question, pulling out biblical nuance and nuance from the observable world and trying to counterpoint each other in a cool, harmonious way of how it fits. I think you'll enjoy the read. Check it out and follow up with me more if you want to take the question deeper. Okay, only time for a couple more. Dang, does this go quick, doesn't it? All right. Hmm, okay. <laughs> Here's a litany. I want, I want to... Okay, let me hold in. Is it bad that I feel my relationship is closer to Jesus than the Father or Holy Spirit? Um, I don't think so. As long as you're not pitting them against it. I mean, this is true in any household, right? I mean, I was to ask my kids, who's your favorite, mom or dad? I mean, they're saying dad hands down, right? I mean, it's no, right? This is just natural, normal kind of way of being. No, my, my son's over here shaking no, so there's hope, Tina. There's hope. No, we all tend to gravitate towards a certain sibling, a certain family member. It doesn't mean you love him more, but sometimes there's, you know him more. There's more of an affinity or it's a season. Oh, allow yourself freedom in that. Allow yourself grace. Just don't rule out the surprise of what lingers in the one that you might be neglecting. And in that, the good news is you get to embrace all three. All right. One final one, and this was random, but it's probably a good way to end for today. Thank you for answering my questions with respect and not taking light of it. You're welcome. All sincerity meant and all joking aside, no, it really is. It's a pleasure and it's an honor to be able to walk along so many of you who are willing to risk your questions with me and with this community today. And we hope that you always find Fellowship of Faith to be a place that you can do just that. Where you know that there's people who want to walk alongside of you, even if we disagree. Even if we see things differently. Hopefully treating each other with love and respect and helping each other on the way. It's what we think church should be about. And guys, we just want to invite you to be a part of that. <laughs>